Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio on a snowy Wisconsin day. Um, I eyeballing it. I'm going to go ahead and say we've got we've got a half inch of snow out there on what might be a, a ten inch snow day, and so we did something that uh, I don't think we ever did when we were kids, Michael. We we had a preemptive snow day. Um, the kids' schools did, and the college. Uh, we're going virtual, and I blame COVID for that. Now we can just go virtual rather than than in person. Um, but we are here at the college for good reason. Um, first, because our podcast listeners need podcast episodes, and if there's something that we care about, it is it is loving and serving our podcast listeners. In fact, uh, Michael almost every morning when he sees me says, "I." I love those listeners, and I and I say, uh, as do I, as do I, Michael. Um, but also, we have a, a special guest today who was supposed to be speaking this evening, who we flew in to come speak to this evening uh, to our students, and then uh, we get all the snow supposedly coming, and so everything at the college in person is canceled, and so we recorded a presentation just before this, and he did excellent. He presented to three people, but it looked like he was presenting to, uh, like it was Pentecost, I would say, um, and did, did very well. Um, and so uh, Riley Sadler is joining us from Let My People Go, um, author of Vulnerable, and we're going to be talking in our free-for-all, uh, podcaster-in-chief, is that an okay title to use? That's what I call myself. Podcaster-in-chief yeah. at... Uh, at MercyCast, which has three episodes that just dropped, and we'll talk that a little bit more. And we are joined also by one of the uh, the very privileged, one of the few um, in the audience for, for Raleigh's uh, kind of like impromptu 8 a.m. record on a Zoom camera presentation, uh, campus pastor Nate Wardell, who is now, is this your third? Or fourth? I do not know. I think it is. It is. A, it's number four, I believe. You're catching up to Pastor Lyon, and pretty soon you will be the uh, the official campus pastor of Let the Bird Fly. Oh. I think I can say with can confidence. Can you have two? Can you have two official campus I pastors? I think there can only be one. Oh my! It's like the Highlander. Oh yeah. my! Does that sound fair, Michael? Oh, there's only one. Yeah. It, um, you say this to all the campus pastors. We don't. We don't need two pastors. We we got most of our lives together. I think. <laughs> so um the uh also you might have just heard a laugh we uh let the bird fly has a bit of a history we uh we've been around now it's getting like six or seven years we've been doing this and there was um there was a time i call this pm pre-michael um where the uh where the podcast was first it was it was me and it was ben Lyer who figured out how to do all the tech stuff because I'm a dummy. And and I said, well, it can't just be me. And we found the voice we needed to get Let the Bird Fly going. I, the insight, the whimsy, the humor. Um, and that was, uh, you might recognize it in a moment here, Peter Hermanson, who um, started missing episodes for what I think is a very poor reason, namely a job. Um, and we've told him maybe not have a job, um, but he changed jobs and he seems to like this one. Um, but we have Peter Hermanson with us. Peter, would you like to say hello? Hello. It's good to be back. And if at, if at any it was point, really Michael that 
drove me away. The, uh, he chased well, and me I was just going to say, if at any point, like if you think he's talking too much, you just jump in, Peter, because you have seniority. And <laughs> this is a, a union podcast. Is it free to say well, that, Michael? I think I need to leave now. I don't want to be a part of it if it's not organized. <laughs> Mike, Michael's thinking. We have often talked about organizing ourselves against you. <laughs> <laughs> I would welcome that as long as there's organization. Um, but we are going to be, uh, as I You couldn't organize your way out of a paper no, bag. No, I just want to like put my fist in the air and have a bonfire and be on strike. <laughs> Is that organized? Somebody, somebody I else. I remember being on strike with my dad as a kid, and it was like the best thing ever. Yeah, somebody Except else for, like, does the, the work. Except for the lack of income that yeah. we, pre- we had. Somebody else does the work, and then you just reap the benefits. You mean scabs? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll tell you what. You grow a Samuel Gomper's mustache, <laughs> and I will join your union. That's you know my only condition. You know what I got condition. the other day? A Deb's t-shirt. It's got Deb's on a nice quote, so... Um, but um, we're going to be talking, then we're going to continue the anthropology series, um, but we're going to spend a good chunk here in the free-for-all talking about Raleigh's work um, and, uh, and his book, and just uh, more importantly, because it's recent, his podcast. And with that, Michael, um, oh, we're also part of the 1517 Podcasting Network, and um, you can go to 1517.org, find a lot of good stuff. I was talking, we took Raleigh out last night, um, Peter and his lovely wife, Amy, who was an English professor here. And Michael came. He had, he had to come a little bit late. He had some commitments. Uh, I went with my beloved wife, uh, Trisha, and uh, Ben and Ashley Lyra there. Ben Lyra of Let the Bird Fly fame, um, of Canada evangelical fame, time zone, animal fights, opposable thumbs. Um, and Ashley has a copy of Michael's book from 1517.org. Um, and I thought, that's great. Mike, you can pre-order Michael's book right now. Um, and she was telling me about it. And it just it made me think, though, you know what I don't have, Michael? Um, a good attitude, <laughs> decency, tact. I, uh, and also a copy of your book. Oh, yeah. And I am really looking book. forward to pretending to read that. Yeah. And I can't do that. So until. those were sent out to people who had been asked to give Amazon reviews, and I wouldn't do that to, to you. That would I would have I would have said I'd give an Amazon review. Well, I know, but it's like close coworkers and family. I didn't do that. It would be people that were. Did this guy get one? No, I should have got I should have got one for him. I did get a copy book for a different thing. Oh, yeah. That was you a different thing. Who yeah. who wrote your forward for this one? I heard you had a very good forward writer for your first book. Yeah, I had Raleigh. And then yeah. um this one was um Broer Erickson. Oh, that guy? Yep. Raleigh, if you look up to your right, you can see a uh, Boogie Nights Broer. Yep. Uh, and then uh John, yeah. uh John Borland. Found that on Facebook and <laughs> our friend John Borland wrote the forward for the Baptismal Life book, so Maybe someday I'll ask you, Jay Wade. Board, huh? yeah, nice. Maybe someday I'll ask you. You wrote a forward for one of my books because yeah. I said I want to ask one of my my close friends, um, coworker, a uh, a fellow ambassador of Christ. Mm-hmm. As, as that was my criteria too. I'm thinking of like retroactively making you a godparent for one of my children. <laughs> <laughs> This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. 
If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all, where I believe, Peter, you used to say we talk about the pressing issues of the day. Um, it's been a while since we've done one of these, uh, and, and so it's, it's good to be able to, to do it. Um, and today, rather than animal fights, um, rather than favorite thing that gives you cancer, um, I'm trying to think of other things on the list, we are going to be talking about our uh, special guest today, whose presentation was was snowed out. Um, but we had planned to have him on either way. Uh, a returning guest to let the bird fly. So, Nate, we think is at four. Raleigh, this is two, right, for you now. And um, the uh, returning guest to let the bird fly, the uh, the man in charge, the founder of Let My People Go, um, the podcast host of Mercy Cast and author of Vulnerable, a book I encourage you all to, to check out. Um, a great read. And why don't we uh, start off, rather than just me telling people about you, um, Raleigh, why don't you share a little bit about what you, uh, your work, what you're doing, and the podcast you have going. Thanks, Wade. Yeah, Let My People Go exists to empower the local church to fight human trafficking by loving those most vulnerable. And so as I was starting it, I didn't really want to engage the whole vulnerability thing because, you know, Vulnerability is not the easiest thing for any of us. Like some people will read a book and be like, yeah, I'm going to be vulnerable. Yeah, that works until you actually start to put it in practice. Then all of a sudden you're like, did I share too much? Did I, sh- I share too much. I share too much. Uh, I'm just going to stay inside. I'm going to stay inside. I'm going to hide. When I Sometimes when I make advances uh, upon my wife in a very affectionate way, not a, anything creepy, but I will say uh, I'm being vulnerable precisely so that she will be like, oh, I'm Wade's vulnerable he's trying to give me a hug or or a kiss right um and the whole shtick is right that this is it's hard to be vulnerable uh she's always mostly disgusted by that <laughs> and says leave me alone but yes i would agree because yeah, she can see right through it right yeah, well, like... and she and she can see me like <laughs> it's not the vulnerability that puts her off. yeah huh. um but yes this is a difficult thing to to do well and that's what i've and much religion tries to protect us from this. Yeah, and I think oftentimes, I said this in my talk earlier, that we can focus on self-protection at the expense of protecting others. And when you're trying to protect yourself, and I don't mean like in a healthy way of protecting yourself. I mean guarding yourself from anything that could threaten you, even growth. And so when we do that, we we will never be vulnerable. In fact, we're going to... We're going to be more focused on showboating and, you know, letting the arrogance fly, you know, rather than kind of saying, okay, well, who am I really and how do I actually connect with someone else? And I think that's through our vulnerability. And so it started with starting Let My People Go to help the local church. And in doing that, I wrote Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking, which really takes this idea that God motivates vulnerable people like you and me to love other vulnerable people by becoming vulnerable for us. How this golden thread of vulnerability is weaved in and out of everything that we do. 
And so it's easy to see God as this taskmaster who's telling us to do things, who's always mad at us. For many, that's their story. But God, you know, Christ came into the world as a vulnerable young child born to a teenage mother who was of a subjugated nation. That's vulnerability. Vulnerability personified, if you will. And this vulnerable Christ comes to us. And so realizing that if God doesn't do it, like if if God's not always being like, got to have it together, be perfect, then maybe I don't have to. And so that's led me to the latest thing is, and I'm, I mean, this has been years in the making. Um, it's, I'm hosting a new podcast called The Mercy Cast, where we're talking about learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life, through the things that we face on a daily basis. We're actually learning how to love our neighbors. The, uh, and you've now this just, I think it, you said it, the, the first three episodes dropped the night before you came to Wisconsin. Yeah. So we could almost say that Wisconsin, specifically Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is the first official stop on the MercyCast podcast launch tour. Oh, yeah. This is my launch event. Right here, right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very honored that we're able to um, to uh, to be that. And you had a guest from 1517 on to start things off, uh, Chad Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You've had two more um, now, and those three, I was listening last night after we got back from all hanging out. Um, worth listening to. Uh, very well done. Production quality is already far superior than the Let the Bird Fly <laughs> podcast. I, it used to be much better under Peter, but now that that it's me um, podcasting uh, with a with a Brandy and Dr Pepper, um, <laughs> you know it. Uh, 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 Raleigh's got us got us beat. If you could um, maybe um, something I think that's fascinating in your story, Riley, if you don't mind bringing it up here too, and you and you brought it up in your presentation, <laughs> um, and I think we talked about it a little bit in the the first time you were on, but part of your story is uh, get ending up in the work you're doing through like odd contact with a Lutheran theologian. Um, and this is this has always just been fascinating to me because as someone who teaches teaches ethics at a a Lutheran college, um, and then in Christ and culture, Mike and I both teach. Um, but you'll often have you know Lutherans who will just say, well, Lutherans don't have an ethic, or Luther didn't have an ethic, and and of course Luther doesn't sit down and write it, a text on ethics. <clears throat> um, and so no, there's no organized like kind of Lutheran system. And Althaus writes a book on this and says Luther does, but. There's others who would take issue with that. Um, but you have a wonderful way um, in this encounter that you had of how proclamation, right? Um, in a, if it's fair to say, like a Lutheran take on proclamation of the gospel, unconditional proclamation, kind of is what led you to, to see you could, uh, to, to steal another line from the same theologian, Riley was worried he might get in trouble for mentioning this theologian's name in this presentation, but this podcast is named after a line from that theologian. So, um, the uh, you could let the bird fly, right? Um, if you don't, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just briefly uh, rehashing that for us. 
You know, it's interesting. I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, you know, that's when you're supposed to— I, I, feel, I felt like if you go to seminary, you should at least somewhat have it together. And here I am, and I was like, am I even a Christian? Does God love me? I had this very distorted view of God's love and his forgiveness, but I, I don't think I was aware of it. But, you know, I came into this school, and I was struggling. I was kind of driving in on fumes, and— you know, I'm doing all these things. And I think for many of us, we can kind of approach the Christian walk by saying something like, okay, so I'm saved by grace, but we're not realizing that we're kind of living by works. And, you know, we're a little worried, that, is God going to get mad at me? And, you know, it's just this weird thing. And here I am, I'm in a class, my professor says, I want you to compare Luther's view of justification by faith versus the Council of Trent's formulation. So I'm like, okay. I wait a little bit to get into the library. There are no books. There are two dusty books on the bookshelf. <laughs> two. One by Carl Broughton and one by someone named Garrett Ferdy. I didn't know. I, I called him Gerhard Ford at the time. I didn't know his uh-huh. name. I was just like, okay. Ger- Garrett Ferdy. Justification, a matter of death and life. And it was a shorter book, so I was like, you know, I'm writing this in the 11th hour. I might as well read this one. And I got a lot out of both of them. But there was one passage in Justification, A Matter of Death and Life, that just stopped me in my tracks. He said, we often view Christianity and our life through a lens of conditionality. If I do this, then this will happen. If I mow the lawn, then I'll get $20. But he's like, that's not how grace works. Although Mike often talks about, he says, if you do this, then I will love you. Yeah. And <laughs> it's always that. And that's your relationship with Mike, And then he never loves me. <laughs> no. He just he says, always, if It's this carrot that he holds. Yeah. He's like, I will love you if you, and you're like, yeah. do you love me now? No. It's, all, I, it's all true. And, and, I, and I grew up in Catholicism, and so I, I was conditioned with this. Yeah. And I, I just I the get truth of the matter is you could do anything, and I still wouldn't love you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know, but I'm gonna try. Still gonna try. Sorry, Holly. No, no, it's so, I love. So that's about Mike and Mike's, Wade's Mike's lack of love. Yeah, that's Mike <laughs> and Wade's situation. But you were saying that that's how we oftentimes see our relationship with God. But Faraday tells us. Oh, you mean Raleigh's story wasn't about me? <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> I apologize. It Eric. actually was about you, Wade. Uh, it was about all of us. Well, thank you. This, do you guys understand now? My attitude towards him (laughs) you know your audience Uh. and so basically you know Ferdy says it's not an if then it's a because therefore because Christ died for your sins therefore you are righteous in his sight and I read that and I was like huh well I know I'm a sinner like I got that down I'm good at that my mom told me growing up beat be good at something and so that's what i chose but you know now i'm looking at this and being like well that's the prereqs so if that's the prerequisites he died for sinners i'm a sinner and all of a sudden i felt free i wasn't working to get god to love me anymore he already loved me i wasn't working for love i was working from love now i was living from love and understanding the gospel set me down this journey where now that I wasn't focusing on 
getting God to love me because I had spent so many hours. I would read tracks. I would do all these things to be like, okay, okay, did it take? Did it take? Did it take? And then I realized, no, it's based in the finished work of Jesus. It's not even based in my reception of the gospel. It's based in the gospel. And so when I realized that, I was free to kind of focus on others for the first time. And that led me down this path of learning how to love my vulnerable neighbor and how to inspire others to love their vulnerable neighbor and in that way see their communities change. Uh, and I, I think this fits well with what we're going to talk about in the main topic. With um, And I think especially if we maybe hit on the loneliness stuff and some of what Michael mentioned, um, already before the fall, we're made for each other. We're, we're made to be neighbor-focused. Um, but still after the fall, that's the case too. God... Um, who loves and promise, loves us and promises the Savior, um, turns us out of ourself to see neighbor too. And one of the first things we see is the neighbor relationship interrupted by the fall. Um, and yet uh, um, we're still called to, to love and serve neighbor because we've been uh, uh, loved and served. And the only way we can do that in a fallen world is to love sinners. Um, and that's always going to then involve uh, self-giving, Right, that this is and, and self giving will be vulnerability. There's no, um, there's no safe, careful way to love. As C.S. Lewis says, you'll never love if you're, if you're waiting for the, the way to love and and, and perfectly protect yourself. Um, why don't we use that as our transition point, and we'll make our way. Before the, before oh, going there, we got to yep. tell everyone where to find Mercy Cast. Oh, that's true. See, this is why we need Peter. Um, let's give some websites. So let my people go lmpg.org. Um, great place to go find out about uh, Raleigh's work in general. Um, you, there's a link there full of uh, vulnerable book. You can also get that on Amazon and elsewhere. Um, but the the big website to look for, um, well, go in your 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 podcatcher app, whatever you're using, Apple Podcasts, whatever you can subscribe. Um, but also you can go to mercycast.com. Um, and everything is laid out, I would say, uh, very nicely uh, there as well. Searching your podcatcher and MercyCast, all one word, and should be one of, one of the first. Actually, I think it was the first in mine. Yeah. So, yeah. Nate, do you have anything you want to plug? No. You, did you put anything on your uh, staff page yet? No. Have you seen the show notes where I keep noting every time you come on that no. I link to your, your blank? <laughs> it just has your name. As soon as I acquire some credentials, I will post them. Well, you can put on there just like what you like and, oh, you know. Um, I like Let the Bird Fly. That would be that'd be great. Maybe you could ask them to even link to it. <laughs> we just mutually link this. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, well, with that, we will make our way to the main topic. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By, your, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And I will leave off there in, in chapter 3, but that gets us into the, the fall into sin. I want to hit on loneliness in a, in a, in a little bit, Michael. Um, but why don't we start first? In the last episode when we were wrapping things up, we, um, we got on, I think, what was a, a good line of thought, um, but I had to go teach. And that was regarding the fact of how um, human beings can often see themselves through the lens of technology or, um, or the, um, the predominant themes of their age. And it came up because we were talking about how kind of in our computer or screen age, we can kind of view a human being like a computer, like someone's wiring is off or their software is out of whack. We might not say it exactly that way, um, but we can take a, a mechanistic view of a human being. Um, you mentioned even earlier kind of the Greeks doing this with like fluids and, and warmth and cool. Um, and we, we try to understand understand ourselves then uh, in this sense um, we can see this even, uh, there's, a, there's a good book on Sons of Cain, and it's not a Christian book, but it, it looks at how people have taken evolutionary biology and formed worldviews or views of human nature off that, both in a very positive or in a very negative way. Um, and maybe if we start with that and then we work to loneliness, um, and then I, I think we get to, out of loneliness, this connection, what happens to human connection with sin and how does God work to restore that right in the promise of christ but i'll throw it to you michael to maybe unpack a little bit what you meant with what you were talking about sure so i think uh, a good um 
way to like start off a discussion maybe in a classroom is to say, how do we primarily see each other and uh, see a human being and take out child of God and all that kind of stuff and say, what are some different options, right? Uh, we're primarily consumers or maybe we're primarily um, animals. Uh, we're primarily uh, people of wisdom. Uh, you could, I think you could probably come up with pretty easily about 20 different ways to think about that. And they all have baggage, right? Dancers. Are we humans or are we dancers? <laughs> I think Plato hmm. talked about that. Does everybody understand? <laughs> okay. All right, I'm just now. surprised you don't have a mute button. For <laughs> <me>. <laughs> um, so you can see this in uh, the history of science, which of course I'm no expert, but how do we take a look at the brain. Um, you can think it through it primarily as an electrician. You can see it primarily as a machine. You can see it primarily as a computer. Um, the fact that we were rightfully excited about DNA, but that analogy also fits our time period with the, the information in computer age. Can we go too far and see everything through the lens of, of one um, cultural uh, set, of, set of lenses, something like that, right? <clears throat> and maybe you miss something, right? So I think this is a good way to start off a conversation so you can get to the point where you say all of those are inadequate, right? They're, they're all inadequate. And you have to get down to, uh, you know, your that you're an embodied soul maybe would be a good place to start, but I think you have to go more than that. Eventually you're going to get to the image of God because that's the only place you're really going to be able to ground a, an authentic human rights. And let me, and it affects us in ways that we don't maybe always think even in the church. So I'll give one example and then I'll come back to your original question. And maybe we've done this before on this, on this uh, podcast, but um, because we primarily think of ourselves as either animals or machines, like I look at you and I see biology first, right? We're very visual and that's pre post enlightenment, uh, post evolutionary theory for sure. But think about how that, especially in America, um, where we're also seen as workers and producers and consumers, how that affects our relationship with food. So I'm, I'm on a road trip and I hear the, uh, the advertisement come stop at, um, this gas station and fill up your tank, your car's tank, but fill up your tank. So I pr primarily see it as machine, right? My body is and eating as I'm putting fuel in my body. Or if you're an athlete, then you're very careful what you put into your body because you don't put regular unleaded into a Lamborghini, right? You're very concerned about this. Well, you, you, you have cut yourself off from understanding just about everything the Bible says about eating. And perhaps most cultures, certainly in the history of the world, but I would argue probably many cultures still today. If you go to like a Tuscan village, eating is a, a long experience, I would imagine. And eating is as much spiritual as it is physical because you're breaking bread with somebody and that's a soul thing, a, a, a not, not just a physical thing, right? Like in the ancient world, you didn't eat alone, right? It was a social kind of thing. And that affects the way we worship, right? Eating's not um, uh, as important as getting information because we're primarily, I think here's one where we have a problem is that we're primarily uh, learners and 
educators in some and in, in when we think about uh, people in the pews rather than holistically, but also um, people with bound wills that need to have the gospel proclaimed. Right? I think there's a lot here. So when we look at both God, who is Trinity, and the creation of Adam specifically alone, and then God teaches him his first lesson, which is it's not good to be alone. We see both God and and those created in his image as social creatures, right? We are social creatures. Right. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing, and I think what you're after there with the concept of loneliness. And and maybe just to go back to the last episode, too, and, and, and reiterate also, um, we do, as we talk image of God, we, um, we recognize that that image of God um, does not remain fully as it was after the fall into sin. Um, we, we have been corrupted, and yet after the fall, right, with no other image of God is repeated of why blood shouldn't be shed. Um, and so uh, people are still, right, in the image of God in that sense. They're being renewed in the image of God in Christ. And so um, this is um, an inherent value that everyone has, whether or not they're a Christian, Right, so it's not like you become a Christian and you have value because you're being renewed in the image of God. Um, we are created in the image of God still, um, immediately through our parents. Um, we have the husk, as as Jason talked about, but not the kernel. Um, but there is something about humans that just gives them an inherent value, and is why, as Christians, we can talk about things like human rights <clears throat> being grounded in more than just enlightenment. Um, you know, in reason or, you know, kind of this deist creator, uh, but also <clears throat> to rooted in gospel that, that each person, whether they believe it or not, is one for whom Christ died and has <coughs> value then. Um, and that that is, is in a horizontal relationship as well. It's not just that God values them, um, but that they uh, are to value each other and that they should value themselves. Um, I know Michael gets at this a lot in his preaching. We also say you're made for something more, right? Um, more than this. Um, since we have Peter here, and Peter is our uh, resident philosopher, um, and maybe you haven't done with, much with Leibniz, so tell me if I'm just misremembering this, or if you don't know, that's fine. Um, but uh, Leibniz, who invents calculus, right? It's a debate, did Newton or Leibniz do it? And, they did it at the same time. No, so. The Lutheran did it, Peter. <laughs> Uh, and uh, independently, the time had fully come for calculus yeah. to be invented. But Leibniz is also like fascinated with the concept of like robots or autonomous, te- you know, technology, and he builds this machine. I believe, but I hope I'm not misremembering. In some fair, he shows it off. Um, but because he's fascinated with that, like he, though he's like a Lutheran, takes this kind of view of human as automaton, you know, um, and kind of how the soul operates with the body and and. Um, and, and we can see that in our day, you know, where um, anytime like an industry is dying, you know, the joke will be, well, learn to code, you know. Um, and uh, and we can definitely think of with DNA um, or sometimes the brain, which is like the last frontier of the body. The brain is, is you know, like the Star Trek um, of, uh, of, of um, you know, research right now still. Um, we can we can take a very like computerish view of of that, um, and we've talked about um, kind of the ditches that we can have 
in previous episodes, which I assume you've not listened to, so that's what I'm telling you, Peter, um, of, you know, the problem of viewing people as just meat, you know, kind of this view of like, well, we're just like animals, we're just meat, um, we're like advanced meat, meat 2.0, um, or viewing people as souls and the body being inconsequential, and we see both those trends in, in philosophy throughout time, um, or, um, you know, figuring out how to meld the two. Uh, but when we... I've mentioned in, in previous, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this too, Peter, so here's the question I'm throwing you. When we think of philosophy and human nature and how people have wrestled with human nature when it comes to philosophy, you know, um, if I'm not mistaken, Sartre and the existentialists kind of throw human nature out and say there is no no such thing because existence precedes essence. Um, but it's not like they've, they're the only ones who have held the day. Uh, but, but human nature seems to often in philosophy, non-Christian philosophy, boil down to either it's a thing separate from the body, which is, you know, like a platonic view, um, or it is kind of just this um, mechanistic, biological, material view, more like animals. Um, do you think that's fair? And is there anything that you come at it as a Christian that stands out to you um, looking at those that something like Genesis brings in that, that maybe um, we don't find uh, in philosophy in general otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know Leibniz very well, so I won't speak directly to that, but it's definitely in the in the air in the um, in the Enlightenment, and I think um, Descartes, who I know much better, has very much has that um, idea of the, the person, the, the human being as a machine and trying to figure that out. But the question that always resonates and it resonates throughout time, whether you're looking at it in a modern um, um, scientific context, which is how we just by default are going to look at it. It's very hard to break out of that, I think. Um, or if you go back to the ancients as well, is how are we, how are we combining you know, the mind or the soul or wh whatever you want to call it um, and the body, right? The physical. And so... It seems like throughout time we we recognize that the human has to be more than that, and it's it's easier in the mechanistic age, or even the computer age now. Maybe the computer age actually, because of the layer of abstraction, makes it even easier yeah. to forget that there's those components. And one of the reasons I think it's we we want to forget that there are those two components is because they're hard to put together, right? I mean, Descartes famously tried to figure out where the soul was was housed, and um, you know, spoiler alert, he figured out it was in the pituitary gland. So, um, but uh, you just look at um, the rows and rows and rows of books on philosophy of mind in, um, in modern, especially analytic philosophy. And you just realize this is a question that we're not, we're not done grappling with. How do these two things interact? Um, I think from my perspective, looking at it as a, from a Christian perspective, one of the things that I think we leave out of the equation in the philosophical debates is the the fallenness of humanity. And so, you know, when you were reading through Genesis three, one of the the first thing that Adam says when God comes and finds him is the woman that you gave me. And yeah. we oftentimes say, Oh, he's passing the blame to Eve. He's really passing the blame two places, right? I mean, you gave me this woman, why did you do this? Mike's talking about we're social, that's important, that's part of what it means to be human. I see, I see Adam as condemning everything and everything possible around him. 
God's at, at fault, Eve's at fault, the way God created humans are at fault. Here, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's anyone but his fault. And that, I think, is like maybe where we find, you know, it's the, the kernel or the core of what it means to be human as we find ourselves, right? So I don't know if that answers the question. Or yeah, not, no, and I think it brings out an important point that we can look at um, what it means to be human in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall, right? And this is what we're made for, and this is very important because um, this is, you know, we want to um, understand, this is why Moses tells the accounts, understand what God created us for. But in this life, we can only know Genesis 3 humans. Yeah. And um, and I think, I, get, I think that gets to um, human relationships and loneliness and vulnerability is a, we desperately want to know Genesis 1 and 2 humans. It's why Twitter exists. It's where we go to fume about people not being Genesis 1 and 2 humans. We're all mad at each other because we want, where's our utopia? And these people are ruining our utopia. Um, and we get to Genesis 3, and, um, and Adam and Eve have a rough go here. They're, bo- they're both going to blame um, they're both ashamed of themselves. They realize they're naked. <clears throat> um, they're both scared of God. And it's, um, right, that's where God could have left them. And and that's once again, I, I mentioned earlier when Raleigh was speaking, most human religion has been created to, like, gloss over that. You know, you um, Raleigh, you mentioned... You know, that in Christianity we have a Christ who came and was vulnerable. You think of like, Allah would never do that, right? Um, you, uh, you know, a, like a strict monotheism, which is just the sovereignty of God. And, and he's up there and he's not messy. Um, but right away, Genesis 3, Moses has God coming right down into this. And there's not like a, there's not like, this would be a great place to place like a Job-like book. You know, you have Genesis 3, the first part, the fall, and then you have 40 chapters of, like, God thinking over what he should do and, like, the Trinity talking. and um, But we don't get that. There's not, like, in God deliberated, should I be done with them? Should I not be done with them? Um, but God's there, and he's, he's present there, right? They, they, he's manifesting himself, and that's, that's what they're hiding from is from the present God. Um, who is still present with us in his word in this in the same way and we and we can at times <clears throat> hide from that because we know precisely the power it has and uh and he doesn't let them um continue in uh you know he could have said you each go your own way you really messed up you know <clears throat> the first divorce um but he he brings them together he makes them close he restores them to each other um, and they're going to have have children, and, and the, the human race will continue on. Um, and uh, and so maybe here is something to hit on with that. Um, we're not made to be alone. Uh, God, we mentioned in the last episode, has Adam name everything, and he's driving home. Adam's alone, and he gives him Eve, um, gives him Eve from his side, uh, not from his uh, foot that that he should rule over her, or from his head that she should rule over him. <clears throat> now we see as a consequence of the fall. Those human religion, those human relationships are complicated, um, 
but they're not ended, neither the vertical nor the the horizontal. And maybe um, as we talk anthropology then, we've spent the first few episodes talking about um, pre-fall human beings. Um, but maybe this is an opportunity to talk about just what it is um, to understand that we have a fallen humanity and then to love and serve, to be loved and serve first by God here, right? The order is precisely as Raleigh mentioned um, in his presentation, um, talking that Christ first comes into this, which he does with his promise, which is as good as Christ himself standing there, right? It's as good as done the second it's promised. That's how God operates. Christ comes in, but then to, to love one another as well. Um, so maybe to have a, um, a realistic anthropology or if we're going to to steal a phrase from from Dave Zoll. I think, do I still have that sticker in here? Do I? Yes, low anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue to have a low anthropology is actually to have a pretty high anthropology at the end of the day um, because it, it drives you to um, to love in a way that, that replicates what Christ has uh, has done. So I'll throw it to you, Riley. I've said a lot there. Um, but uh, I want to kind of get you where I'm thinking in Genesis so you're not feeling like I'm just put, leaving you on a ledge. So, I think it's so interesting to think just a few verses earlier, they were naked and unashamed. And then all of a sudden, God is coming to them through this beautiful redemptive act. He, I mean, he's coming to them and saying, where are you? He's pursuing them. I think that's – and then they're hiding in the bushes and like you said, he clothes them and, in a sense, is bringing them together because, you know, because of their actions, they are separated, in a sense, from God and each other. But I find it interesting is, like, yes, you have doubt introduced, you have sin introduced, you have division introduced, and it continues to grow. And, I mean, even even with their children, you know, it's like you see exploitation introduced with Cain's like, okay, there's this distortion in, you know, in his mind and God doesn't accept his gift and sibling rivalry at its ultimate takes place. And And then Cain's children boast of exploiting. Yeah. You know, Lamech and others are going to make this like their... Their persona is is being exploitative. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's the beauty of the redemption story throughout Scripture. Is it's like, in a sense, this it wasn't supposed to be this way, but God is redeeming. You know, we're no longer in Genesis one and two. You know, yeah. now in this post fall reality, we do have loneliness. We do have anger. We do have well unbridled anger we have all these things that are threatening our relationships with one another yeah and i and i think you mentioned with the exploitation really if we think of unpacking the old testament then um it's often precisely in moments of exploitation that god um makes himself present and delivers right the the slavery in egypt um or joseph being sold mm-hmm. um as a slave uh Obviously, we have with, with Abraham, Abraham's deliverance of um, of, of others, uh, but again and again, and then Christ coming right in the midst of, of Israel being occupied. Um, that this this theme of 
um, exploitation is something that will not be avoided in this world and that even God's people are going to find themselves in again and again. Um, that the gospel, the temptation, I think, in the midst of that is always to go law. But that's precisely where the where the gospel needs to come in and be spoken as well. Um, it's good to to make and pass laws, for instance. But I, I think of often today, people think they've done their part when they've changed their profile picture or they've shared the right slogan. And we talk about this in a, in, in, a, in ethics when we, at the end, I have them read the, um, the Grand Inquisitor from the Brothers K. And Ivan's all about the big causes and Alyosha just sees his brother and kisses him. <clears throat> Ivan says, I don't, I don't like faces. And um, I think that something that Genesis 3 <clears throat> really shows here and then Scripture expounds on is that Christians are supposed to see faces, right? And so while Adam and Eve hide themselves, God brings them back and, and you see faces, you love faces. Um, Cain loses sight of Abel's face. He murders his brother because he's so caught up with his own righteousness. Um and and here, uh, right? What does God do in Christ? But takes a face. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll stop talking there and throw it to whoever. But I, I, that's just what I'm, the stuff that's in my head as thinking of this topic. So, it's something that <clears throat> Riley said that struck me is you know they they realize that they're naked naked and then they go hide, clothe themselves, and God comes to them, right? And that's such a great image of exactly how in our vulnerability we are found by God, right? That, and that it, from a, from a Lutheran perspective, that's really easy. We can, you know, we try to remind our kids of that to, you know, as a, as kind of a hedge against the creeping works righteousness mentality. But we see that right here. And not only does he come and find them, he says, this is what I was getting at poorly before, but Adam blames God in his accusation. And God says, no, you two are together. And he puts them back together, even in their broken state, and said, no, this is how I want it to be. This is good. And so it's all the acts of God, you know, kind of re recreating what he's created in this broken state then. And now we live with that, and that creates a whole lot of chaos and confusion. But I don't know, it's a, it's, it's a powerful story, right? Right at the beginning, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating how... In so many ways, we still react like Adam and Eve. We still deny our vulnerability. We still try to cover it with whatever we can find. And oftentimes, it is self-righteousness. You know, we, well, well I, I have it together. And sometimes we do good things. I'm doing air quotes here. We do good things maybe for the wrong reason or to bolster ourselves. Like Wade had talked about um, what I would define as hashtag activism. It's very easy to sound right and sound like you're doing the right thing and be able to point to people like, look, look, I'm okay. Virtue signal a little bit. Yeah. You know, look, like it's very easy to virtue signal without having any virtue at all. And I think that all finds its onus in the garden. And we're, we're kind of repeating that past trauma of, am I okay? I need to fix myself. All the while, God's saying, I'm here. Uh, and he's coming to us, and and maybe Riley or or Nate, and um, since Nate, you're dealing with students in a way different than than Mike and I often are. Um, but Riley, in your work, so 
one of the things we learn about our God, and as we've been going through the series, um, we're looking at anthropology, but you can't do anthropology apart from God. There is no, there is no human beings apart from God. But God sees the people hiding. He sees the people scared. <clears throat> he sees the people right naked and ashamed. Um, and maybe um, for our listeners, and just for us thinking in general, what does it mean as as so as Christians as we're learning to love as God loves? How do we um, kind of put on those glasses to be able to? And you talked a little bit in your presentation about you know noticing stepping over people while you're trying to help people. But how do we um, learn to to see the hiding, the scared, the afraid, um, and to bring the love of Christ uh, to them? Especially because, you know, um, the church, and I would say especially maybe Protestantism, and especially um, conservative Protestantism, is often located away from many of those people um, you know uh, on the edge of town uh, but how do how do we uh, maybe put on those eyes um, and once again in a gospel way this is not like okay I've been converted and now I have to do good works and I have to find a leper to kiss the wounds of you know like St. Francis or something um, but just to be aware that sometimes the hiding, the afraid, the scared is the person right next to you and you just don't know it until you realize um, that you yourself are often that and, and don't show it as obvious. I don't know for either of you. I'm guessing a lot of time Nate, people often end up in your office and they're starting to realize that they're that and it really troubles them um, and they don't get that that's, that's, that's everyone in sin. But either one of you that wants to jump in. Yeah, I'll just I'll just jump in with something quick, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say, Raleigh, about this. But um, so, just queuing off of the terminology and the language in Genesis three, I would say a good metric to find out who is broken around you is whoever is wearing clothes is somebody who is broken <laughs> and needs to cover up something that's deeply wrong with them. Give inside. me a second. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, that's the instinct that Adam and Eve had. They said there's something, and you could have an interesting debate, right, with what you're saying, Peter. Did they have shame over their bodies or did they have shame over their souls? And it's almost impossible to separate them, right? So they decide to cover. And God meets them and says, you're not wrong. You ought, yeah, in this state, it is appropriate for you to be covered. But that doesn't mean to be hidden from one another. And that doesn't mean to not engage with one another. And so I just use that as kind of a cheeky way to say, yeah. Every single person you encounter is wearing externally for everyone to see evidence that they are broken, just like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Um, how you get at that, I think, is just a matter of opportunity, right? Like who, who is giving you an opportunity to, to do some um, bridging the gap, some coming together, some creating community? And oftentimes um, it's the people closest to you. You know, it's, it's, it's like the brothers K, like you were saying, you know, um, it's, it's relevant that the kiss was delivered to a brother's face, right? Yeah. Because he was there. And so sometimes the people who you're there with, people who you are friends with can be the hardest to reach out and help, but can also be, um, 
the people who you have the opportunity to do. That's what I see walking into my office a lot. My friends, this, my boyfriend, that, my mom, you know, my professor, somebody who they have regular contact with. And um, it's those people who are either in the best position to help the student who's struggling or the student can turn around and offer their vulnerability to them and say, can you please work with me through something? Um, so most of the stuff that most of the solutions that I propose in my office are let's get together with somebody else and work through this. Like Adam and Eve had to get together and figure out a Genesis three world. Um, that's not like a clean answer to exactly how it goes, but I just think it's everybody. And so everybody's in a good position to help, but you have a much more specific focus rally and I'm intrigued to hear how it plays out in your in your work. Well, I've been thinking about this as both of you have been talking that we see the world through the lens of connection, whether that's connection with God, whether that's connection with each other. And in doing that, for us to really understand how do I connect with people that may remind me of the things that I don't want to see about myself, because the only way to do that is to, in a sense, embrace and own the places that we fear the most to kind of look at that thing that we're always saying, no, I, I don't want to deal with that. I, I know that that happened, or I know that I may believe that about myself, but I, I don't, I, I just want to focus on this. We don't want to see our own nakedness. You know, we don't want to look at ourselves as we are. I remember the first time that I ever did like a strategic and operational plan for ministry I mean, it was all aspirational. <laughs> it was all aspirational. It was like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that because I saw myself in the future. I was not being able to say, well, what are we now, though? And it's almost like you have to look and own where you are, and you don't have to like it, but you can accept it and be like, this is where I'm at. And I think for us, oftentimes we avoid people that remind us of our own issues. We avoid people that remind us of our past pain. And we always put the, the onus on them, kind of like Adam, when he's like, God, it's the woman that you gave me. He's passing the buck to everyone else but himself. He's unwilling to see his responsibility in it. And I think for us, if we want to learn to help and care for other people, one, we have to, we have to face that down. And I think it's in the desperation of our own estate that we're free to see others and not see others from a perspective of, I want to save them. I want to help them. But like, that's a fellow sufferer. That person has, there's a unity in that. In my podcast with Chad Bird, he talks about a unity of sorrow, how in our sorrow, we're not, it, we can kind of back away and just isolate. But he's like, when we realize that we're all kind of going through it, we connect like during the peak pandemic. I remember connecting with a lot of people because we all had something in common. We didn't know what was going on. And I think that desperation and that confusion, it can sometimes be a gift because it draws us back to connection for which we were created. Yeah. It's interesting. Luther, um, and I don't think he's right, but I'm also not a great Genesis scholar, but, uh, with with Cain and Abel later, when God's talking to Cain and he says, you know, sin is crouching at the door, mm -hmm. um, Luther says that's Adam talking for God. Um, because Adam is now like priest and prophet and like governor of the world. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, it seems like it's God saying it. 
Um, but that is a powerful picture if it's Adam speaking, like Adam who's gone through this. And now, like Adam who brought death into the world, and now that death is brought, right, brings the death of his own son Abel, you know, talking about, well, sin, you know, this is what it is. This is what's going on. Um, and then Adam and Eve, who in patience maintain that relationship even after, um, you know, uh, Abel is dead and uh, Cain's, you know, their grandkids are like major assholes. Uh, you know, like the whole line is bragging about murdering people and, and whatever else. What do Adam and Eve do? Adam and Eve, their relationship continues. They have Seth. And that's the first time one of the boys is called a son, right? Um, and that's when it's introduced, too, that we now have this, like the fear of God or, you know, um, uh, faith, whatever you want to you call it. Um, then you get to Noah and you have the flood. And so we're set up to be like, here's, you know, Noah's the big hero. He gets off the ark and he offers sacrifice. That's great. But then what does he do? He, uh, he has some brandy and Dr. Pepper. But it's strong brandy, right? <laughs> then he, and he, then he forgets out, to clothe himself. Yeah, he passes out <laughs> naked, right? And what does is, what is community do? He goes viral, right? His son comes in and says, oh, I got to show everybody. And this is all eight people in the world are going to find out. Um, but they, they, they cover sin. We see that with Noah. Um, and then yet Noah then is kind of prophet and priest and governor of the world at that time. And that we see the pattern again and again. We see it with Abraham. Um, that those who are called to to preach, and I don't mean here simply in the sense of preach as like a called worker even, but to be vehicles of grace um, are people who themselves um, have learned well what it is um, to be keenly aware of their own nakedness um, and shame, and yet they've had it... Um, forgiven they've had it covered they have the promise of of messiah and it because when i do genesis with my freshmen i'll often say well why does god put in these why does he put the negative stories in there like why why doesn't moses leave out abraham you know keep saying oh sarah is just my my sister um why is all that there and I, i think we see this this theme in genesis other than some of you look at some other ancient near eastern religion where Either, you know, it's it's all just sin and messy and power, which really is the gods of this age. It's just power. That's all we do now is debate power. Um, or um, or it's like the this cleaned up, you know, neat thing. But uh, Nina, I saw you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, that's a fascinating observation. It resonates with what Riley was saying in his presentation. I just have a question, like, a, and I'm interested to hear from different perspectives around the table. Um, if it is, if it, I think it's true that we need to kind of get close to our own vulnerability, close to our own nakedness in the terms of Genesis three, in order to better equip, to better help and minister to people like Adam did to Cain or to Abel. Yeah. There's, there's got to be a healthy way to get close to my own vulnerability and then an unhealthy way, you know? Yeah. And I've, I think we're headed for gospel, right? That's where my mind goes. But I'm just thinking in, in, in more specific terms, how do you approach these scary things about yourself, get a realistic mirror for yourself without, you know, jumping off the deep end or, you know, like, um, yeah. So I'm just, you know, we got a lot yeah. of di- disciplines around the table. Let's, I'm interested let's give a Let's give a, I'm going to throw to Michael for a quick, I think, uh, not used enough Lutheran thing that was meant to deal with this, and then we'll throw it to Raleigh. But um, 
I think um, something that Luther appreciated and the early Lutheran fathers appreciated and that they retained um, for medieval Christianity but reformed is the practice of private confession and absolution. Um, and I'll throw it to you real quick, Michael, as it, um, you know, and not that you're, this is not like, okay, come and, and make yourself sound real bad. Come say how sinful you are. Um, but the idea of especially the preacher being on the receiving end of that and, um, and, and, and confessing to another preacher, right? When, uh, why don't I throw that to you, Michael, and then we'll go to Raleigh. But any thoughts, since you teach worship and these things surely come up? I'm not exactly sure where, what, what, you, what you're after here, but I'll talk anyway. Well, if we're going to be, I would say um, Luther recognizes the need to be, if we're going to use the word vulnerable as we've been using, um, for the Christian, but also for himself, avails himself of it often with Bugenhagen, um, to go and before God, because okay. it's not about the pastor, yeah. um, to say, look, here's, here's me, um, but then to do it in a way that there's a word that's coming that says, yeah. yeah, that's you, but you know, go where you want with it. Yeah, I just in worship class we talk about corporate versus individual uh, confession, and and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but um, you know, there's plenty of people in the pew who are like, if 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 I was truly exposed before the pastor, if I was truly vulnerable to put this. Uh, Raleigh's language in here, then he wouldn't say that, right? But to hear it out loud is to have the fig leaf and then to be covered with the righteousness of Christ, right? I mean, yeah, I think, Nate, you said very well, like, you ain't wrong that you needed to cover up. You just covered it up with the wrong thing, right? And so maybe confession absolution is a ripping apart of, it's ripping off of the, Facade ripping off of the um, self righteousness, ripping off of all the things that we use to cover to make ourselves look better. Yeah, which is fascinating. When uh, we should maybe have like a whole episode on clothes and how fashion actually does that. You know, and it does that, and yet it can be a beautiful. You know what I mean? Uh, there, there is maybe an analogy there uh, that's maybe would hit a little bit more home than we would like to. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that out of that private confession and absolution, we can extend that into this is parent with child, um, this is spouses, this is, um, you know, there's, uh, if we have students and a roommate is in essence, in essence confessing, this was uh, the now sainted gymnastic and was so good at saying you, you listen for the person who's confessing and you give them an absolution. Um, if a student is listening and you start to hear they're confessing, then you absolve them, right? You forgive them. Not in the same way that the pastor does in representative ministry. And, um, and they don't. I, they might not know that they're confessing. Right. Yeah. Um, but the idea that the church is a place where we ought to be able to do that, and I, I just bring that up because I think for our pastors listening, pastors don't get to do that very often and that this is a resource. But I'll throw it to you, Raleigh, for in general, um, what, what you mean by, um, you know, does this become kind of like the hokey self-inventory that was popular for a while? Or what does it mean to come um, to terms with your own nakedness? You know, I think we're we're tying a couple of streams of thought together. We've been talking about connection. We've been talking about confession. I'm thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous and the first step, right, is admitting that you have a problem. But who is admitting to? It's admitting that to other people. There are plenty of people who think, 
self-acceptance is just being like, well, this is just how I am, and that's not it. In confession, we are confessing to God that we agree with the reality of our situation, that we know what we, like, things are not the way they should be. And so I think in doing that, we are kind of bridging the gap between confessing of confessing the reality of the situation, my part in it, what's happening, going to that place I fear the most, but going to someone about it. And I think that's why programs, 12-step programs, have always historically worked well because you wed the two. And I've seen churches try to do it, but even in certain church contexts, there's less connection than there could be. Uh, no, I like... Um that confessing the reality of the situation. I think that's a great way to put it because it, um, and that fits kind of, of how Protestants see confessing sins over against, you know, growing up in Catholicism where you're supposed to enumerate all your sins. You're listing them all. And part of that is like, so you can do diagnosis and then you're going to work on, on this. Um, and part of what we see Adam and Eve having to come to grips with, and then they terribly having to come to grips with, with, with what happens with Cain and Abel. And, and what we have to often come up, to grips with, and I, I think this is part of aging. Um, God gives us less and less choice about it. Um, it's just the reality of the situation. And then when we, when you embrace reality, you can actually maybe act in reality um, then too, right? Uh, but but it's what do we do when we embrace, we confess reality? Well, God then gives us reality as well. Um, the, the, the sinner is at the same time... Uh, saint right the precious child of god anybody got we've gone a while i don't want to have us go way long but anybody else have any thoughts i want to share i'll i'll stop talking for now no there's a, there's a lot here and i don't want to you know open up another um whole conversation about it but the this idea of of uh clothes has really got me thinking in terms of how we present ourselves to god and then how God sees us. God, of course, sees us, you know, naked and, you know, I mean, he sees it all. And it almost seems like what God is trying to get Adam and Eve to do and trying to get us to do is see us as he sees us, which is first and foremost, I mean, as his child, right? But that's only after we reconcile our fallen state. And he sees that. And, and so we try to hide that. They tried to hide it from him. We try to hide it from him, try to hide it from each other, try to hide it from ourselves. And it's almost like we're, we're continually getting hit over the head with it to the, to, as a way of saying, no, deal with that kind of, you know, deal with the ugliness because then you can recognize and appreciate my grace. Yeah. And, and so Jesus says it's not the healthy, you need a doctor. Yeah. But the sec speaking of clothes, as we wrap up, Peter, I would like to compliment you on your t-shirt. Oh. I like this. Michael, you see that? Milwaukee County Stadium. That's a, uh, it's retro. Um, Riley, I'd like to thank you for, for joining us. Um, yeah. I uh, check out Let My People Go, lmpg.org, MercyCast, um, mercycast.com, uh, Vulnerable, you can find on Amazon and elsewhere. And uh, maybe as we as we close, Riley, uh, do you have an upcoming, so not one that's out yet, but an upcoming podcast you're especially excited about that people should, after they listen to these three, that they should be looking forward to? Oh, yes. I... I interview an author, Rochelle Starr. She started an organization called Scarlet Hope that works with those 
trapped in a commercial sex industry. And we talk about kind of this desire to work and do things, but really that whole episode is basically learning how to stop because we can be so driven that we completely burn ourselves out. And then, you know, if you don't have margins in your life, you're not going to be able to care for those in the margins. And so we have a really great conversation about that. She has a new book coming out. And so, yeah, I'd invite you to check it out. It's going to be coming out most likely next week. Well, good. And then the last question I have for you is if you look right behind you on the door, there's a picture. Um, how disturbing would you say that picture is? <laughs> like if, if I was walking down the hall and I just looked backwards and saw that. Um, yeah. I, do you recognize that person? Oh, I do. I do. He gave me you a root him beer last night. Last night. Yeah. Like, yeah. And if he but, gave me a root beer when he was looking at me yeah, like that, that's I, would, I, I would cry and probably <laughs> beat myself a little it. bit. Like, there would be a lot that was going on. Yeah. Just so you know, that's his official faculty picture, and he, no. missed, re- he missed retake day. So for those for those who are just listening and not in the room, it is a picture of uh, Jason Oakland. Yes. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Like, I like that as... You need to put that like above it, your mantle in I, your house. I like to tell him it looks like it's the, he just he's never had his picture taken before, <laughs> and he's afraid like it's going to steal his soul. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like thinking really hard I to keep his soul did, inside. Though. It might have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that makes me happy, and that's a great way to end the podcast. I don't think we told you what to say at the end, but uh, Michael, maybe you can show him the thing. But um, when it comes down to it, then, as we live in a fallen world and we confess the reality of living in a fallen world, God nonetheless comes to us when we hide, when we are ashamed. Um, and so, in that God who comes to us and who speaks his word of absolution, what is it that we can uh, finally do in life, Raleigh? Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round. One more round won't get me down.